humans are, are a bit strange in many different ways. We are a strange breed of people. We, we like to, we like things that, we like to dwell on things and do things that overwhelm our senses and our thoughts. We like to think about things that just make us in awe. In case you hadn't heard about it, a group from here, Skydove, I think that's a word, yesterday. Did you guys hear about that? Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, and some people like to do that. They just like their senses to be overwhelmed by jumping out of an airplane and, Lord willing, safely landing on the ground. Did everybody land safe on the ground? Everybody? Okay, good. Um, hadn't heard from everybody yet. Some of them are not here, so um, little concerned. But we just there's, there's some of you that just love that feeling of your senses being overwhelmed. Others of us aren't so much like that with our senses as we are with our thoughts. We like to, as, uh, as we say now, we like to have our minds blown, right? We like to think about things that just are amazing, right? We like to ponder things that blow our minds. So let's just think on these things for a second. Here's the first one. Most of the sky is below your feet. Oh, right? Like, oh, that's actually true. And unless you're a flat earther, and then you may dialogue with me after that. Uh, Here's another one. If you're watching a sunset, someone on the other side of the earth is watching the same sunset at the exact same time. Wow, that's that's amazing to think about, to to even ponder that somebody's, I mean, I, I that, unless you're a flat earther, and then again, this one's going to be a little bit troublesome for you. Last one, last one. Technically, every mirror that you buy at a store is in used condition. You never thought about that before. Now you're like, hey, I should get a discount or something like that. If you want to get even deeper, you can take a look at something as simple as a bicycle. It's a lovely little machine. We love our bicycles. They were fun as children. They're helpful now. We get some exercise with them. But did you know that scientists have been arguing for centuries, literally centuries, on how a bicycle stays up when it is in motion? The prevailing theory over the years has been that the gyroscopic forces of the wheels spinning kept the bicycles upright. Well, Unfortunately, that was disproven in 2011 by a team of scientists who built a bike with contraptions that uh, counteracted any gyroscopic forces. And so now, among scientists, there's no grand unifying theory on why a bicycle stays upright. There's a bunch of different theories, but scientists, like the really smart people, don't agree on that. So as you take a bike ride this afternoon, understand that PhDs in physics don't know how you're staying upright. <laughs> and you'll probably fall. Um, and so I apologize for ruining your bar- bike ride there. For the record, I have really no idea what I'm talking about here. I'm not even sure what gyroscopic forces are. But from my five minutes on the internet, I simply discovered that something I once thought was re- just really, really simple and easy was incredibly complex. A bicycle and how it stays upright is incredibly complex, and people don't understand the depths of it. You can be thankful that I didn't get into the difficulty of simply defining left and right. Um, 
This is not as easy as you think it is. A group of philosophers in 1991 compiled a 400-page book discussing the subject. If you're hoping to borrow my copy of The Philosophy of Right and Left, Incongruent Counterparts in the Nature of Space, just let that dream die. That one is mine. I'm not lending it out. There are these concepts that are seemingly simple, but actually, when you dive into them or think about them, they're ridiculously complex. Psalm 8 has that sort of character in it. A few months ago, when we divided up this series and kind of did our our Psalms fantasy draft of who's going to preach these different Psalms, I chose Psalm 8 because I wanted to do a nature psalm. I wanted to do a psalm celebrating creation and the nature. I'm a big fan of the natural world. I enjoy the outdoors a lot, and I knew this was that type of psalm. But as you discover, as you will discover here over the next few minutes, this is no mere nature psalm. There is more going on here, and we're going to get into it. So I'm going to read this psalm, and at first blush, you'll likely think, well, that's simple enough. We can go home early today. Um, The meaning seems so simple, but as we get into it, as we ponder it, as we chew on it, this poem is strikingly rich, and I think we'll discover some beautiful complexity here. So don't get ready to leave quite yet, all right? Here's Psalm 8. It's written to the choir master, as you can see in the heading, according to the Giddith. I tried to get Darren and the musicians to sing according to the Giddith, but like all Bible interpreters, no one really knows what that word means. Um, It's perhaps a musical instrument, perhaps a melody, we're not really sure. But Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. Listen to this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, 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 You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, you are majestic and glorious. You are robed in splendor. And by your grace, you have crowned your people with glory and honor. This is truly mind-blowing. So help us this morning to see the amazing truth of this psalm. Help our hearts to be filled with joy because of the amazing truth of this psalm. And this will only happen as your spirit takes your word into our stubborn minds and hearts. So break in this morning and fill us with awe at your glory and at the good news of the gospel. We pray this in the majestic name that is over all the earth. Amen. Amen. 
Well, I got to admit, I could preach this psalm for the next six hours or so. I won't, but I could. My, uh, my study at home is just piled with books and notes. I went, on off, went off on all sorts of really interesting and fun rabbit trails as I prepared this sermon. Um, I was reading about ancient Near Eastern cosmology. I was reading about astronomy. I was even reading about mythical, uh, mythological sea creatures based off the content of this psalm. I won't get too deep into those things. You can be thankful for that. Because at, at its core, Psalm 8 does seem very simple. It just says, you know, God is majestic. God is majestic. The heavens show his glory. So worship the Lord. That's kind of the, the, the thrust of this psalm. And it's true. It's, it's absolutely beautifully true. But there's more here. There's more here. And in order to really sense that and see that, it's helpful to know the context of the Psalms in general and how this Psalm, Psalm 8, fits in the flow of the entire Psalter. If you remember back a month and a half ago or so, I preached a sermon on Psalms 1 and 2. Psalms 1 and 2 are the doorways into the Psalms. They, they talk about a righteous man in Psalm 1, and then they talk about an anointed king, and they push you eventually towards Jesus. And they become, these become themes throughout the Psalms. It's an introduction to the Psalms. But then, in Psalm 3, something changes. The king, David, is now running for his life from his son, Absalom. And he writes this psalm of lament in Psalm 3, a psalm of, uh, of crying out to God. And it, it changes things, because you see this, this, this this presentation of a righteous man, you see this presentation of an anointed king who we are supposed to bow to, but then in Psalm 3, the king is running. He's, on, he's fleeing for his life. David, the man after God's own heart, the anointed king of Israel, who has been promised that his kingdom will never be lost, is on the run for his life and crying out to God. And this continues from Psalm 3 to Psalm 4 to Psalm 5 and 6 and 7. And then you hit Psalm 8, so you have this string of psalms that are David's laments. They're David's cries of pain and cries for relief to God. And then you have Psalm 8. And then if you flip your Bible to the next page or look to the next psalm, that string of lament psalms continues from 9 until about 17, 16, somewhere around in that area. So you have this whole pile of lament psalms, of David on the run, David fearful for his life, David concerned, David crying out to God for mercy and relief and rescue. And in the middle of all those psalms, the psalm we just read, Psalm 8, which does not resemble any of the psalms around it. Psalm 8 is a little beam of light in the middle of a longer series of psalms of lament. It's a song of praise, not of anguish. Gerald Wilson, one commentator, says this, Here in Psalm 8, if just for a moment, darkness and suffering are driven away by the commanding vision of the sovereign God of the created universe and his unfathomable care for humanity. So to use my one allotted Tolkien reference in this sermon, this is the Rivendell of the Psalter. It's a place of rest and joy and perspective in a journey of trial and struggle and difficulty. So I've given you a little spoiler on what this psalm does. It's a ray of hope in a world of suffering. But before we think of any of the details of this text, I think it's helpful to step away for just a second and ponder something. 
In a few minutes, I'm going to ask you a question that I want you to think about. You don't have to answer it out loud, um, but I, I, want, I want you to think about this. In, in order to do that, I'm going to remind you of something that we've discussed in these sermons over this summer. And that truth that we've said in various ways is that we were created as a species, as a human race, we were created to marvel at something. We were created for, to, to observe and to find joy in something bigger than ourselves. A while back, I mentioned C.S. Lewis, and I said this quote, admiration or marveling is the correct, adequate, or appropriate response that if paid, admiration will not be thrown away, and that if we do not admire, we shall be stupid, insensible, and great losers. We shall have missed something. So Lewis says, you were created to admire something greater than yourself. And if you don't do that, if you just admire yourself as the greatest, you're stupid and a loser, to use the words of the great C.S. Lewis. Not my words, his. So humans were created with this innate bent to worship. We were created to look outside of ourselves. And since the dawn of humanity, we have worshipped all sorts of things. So here's the question that I was pointing towards. What do you worship? Or another way to put it that might be helpful for you is, what do you marvel at? I like the word marvel. Even though it's been co-opted by a company that was previously called Timely Comics and then Atlas Magazines before finding a really sweet spot with Marvel Comics. We love to marvel. We all marvel at something. We can't help but marvel. We long to know and celebrate something bigger than our puny, little, mundane, kind of boring, often repetitive existence. We long for something bigger. And so we're drawn to these marvelous stories of Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man or Steve Rogers becoming Captain America or Bruce Banner becoming Incredible Hulk. One of you knows this. Scott Lang becoming, anyone? Ant-Man, all right. Uh, Daniel Germain becoming Danger Man, uh, a Marvel superhero, very, very minor Marvel superhero, uh, not a very good one. Uh, Carol Danvers becoming Literal, no, not Batman, literally Captain Marvel. Um, her name instructs you to marvel at her as if her flight and super strength and whatever other powers she has don't do that for you. In case you didn't get it, you know, you're supposed to marvel at her. Um, Captain Marvel, it's, it's a horrible name, and I know I'm treading on thin ice with comic book nerds here, but I'm going to continue. Maybe superheroes don't do it for you, okay? Um, but I guarantee you have found something in life to marvel at. Some of you marvel at a work of art in a museum. You can stand there and look at a painting like this and just be in awe of the skill of that artist. Others of you will stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon or near the Rocky Mountains and just marvel at the landscape, the beauty of the world. Others of you put on a record or a CD or your Spotify list and you listen to a great album and you are just marveling at the skill and the genius of a band like this, which I would argue is one of the greatest albums ever. Or maybe it's a film or a novel. This is a novel. It's not, it is kind of technically kind of a slip-in 
Tolkien reference again here. But you just you can marvel at that great film work or that great writing. Others of you are maybe not that artistic, and you just can marvel at the lawn that you have outside after you mow it. You just start like, that looks good. This is not a picture of my lawn. John Piper puts it this way. We are made for a magnificent joy that comes from outside ourselves. So these things that we've listed, these great stories, beautiful scenery, amazing compositions, they're worthy of some level of admiration. But getting more specific, James K. Smith says this, and he's a big Augustine scholar, so he says it in kind of a similar way to Augustine. He says, we are made to love the one who made and loves us. Since our hearts are made to find their end in God, we will experience a besettling anxiety and restlessness when we try to love substitutes. In other words, if you make things other than God ultimate, it will fill you with anxiety. You were created to marvel ultimately at God. You were made to marvel at something other than yourselves. You were made to worship the Lord. So Piper says, worship is what we were created for. This is the final end of all existence, the worship of God. God created the universe so that it would display the worth of his glory, and he created us so that we would see this glory and reflect it by knowing and loving it with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Yet, we spend the bulk of our time either making something wonderful ultimate or gazing at things far from marvelous. My kids are probably rolling their eyes seeing that thing. It's not a picture of any of my kids. That's from the internet. Um, I don't think we know how to properly marvel anymore. I think we've lost that. We've lost that. Our gaze has narrowed into trivial things. And we were created for something bigger, as this psalm will show us. The things that David faced in Psalms 3 through 7 and the Psalms after Psalm 8, pain and difficulty, betrayal and suffering and loss and death and abandonment, they all turn us away from our proper orientation of worship. And we lose sight of the greatness and glory of God in those moments or in those years. So Psalm 8, I think, is plunked into the middle of this string of lament songs to to lift our heads to something that is worthy of our wonder and worship. Psalm 8 just pops out in its brilliance from this section of the Psalter. So let's work through it. Here's how David writes this prayer, this song. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You'll see that that is also the last line of the psalm. It's the last verse of the psalm as well. So David starts and ends the psalm with this line. It might seem a little defeating to praise someone's name, though. Like, that's that's odd. We don't often praise someone's name. Maybe we do. We say, that's a nice name. I like your name. But but if that's that's what you kind of, like, center your praise around, I... That's a little strange. If I were to tell Marianne, oh, Marianne, my Marianne, how majestic is your name? I I don't think that would melt her with feelings of adoration and love. I I tried it this morning, and it, it it, it didn't seem to do much, really. 
So for us, that, that can be, seem a little weird. Like, we, we praise someone's name. Like, like, I really like the sound of your name, Derek. Um, like, what is, what is that about, huh? This is tremendously significant, though, maybe not for us, but for an ancient Hebrew in their relationship with God, and it's captured in the first line of the psalm, O Lord, our Lord. Our English translations can hide this a bit, though. You see in your Bibles how the first Lord is all these small caps, and the second Lord is not that? It's kind of a normal uppercase, lowercase thing. So God is first addressed as Lord with all caps. Then he is addressed as Lord without things. Is that like a typo, or what's going on with that? Well, the words in the Hebrew language there are two different words for God. The first one, the all caps Lord, or small caps Lord, sorry, is Yahweh. That's the word for O Lord, the first one. The second Lord, our Lord, is the word Adonai. So in some version of Hebrew-English amalgamation, this would be O Yahweh, our Adonai. And packed into these little terms of address is a long history between God and his people. Here's a tip. When you see the small caps Lord in your Bible, try to train yourself to jump to the word Yahweh because that's what's behind it in the Hebrew. And it's significant and important because that name, Yahweh, which good Hebrew folk sought to never utter aloud, was the particular name that the God of the universe gave to the people of Israel when a covenant was established with them at Mount Sinai. It's the name that God gifted to Moses in the appearance at the burning bush, which was, interestingly, on Mount Sinai. So all of this, for a good Hebrew kid who's maybe reciting David's psalm here, would conjure up these understandings of the unique relationship God had with the Israelite people. He gave the Israelites his personal name. Call me this, he said. It established this relationship. It showed that they were his. He rescued them. He brought them out of Egypt. He gave them the law. He brought them to the promised land. He established David's throne. The God who created the universe was their God. Oh, Yahweh. And then the second kind of normal-looking Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. It's a term used to refer to a superior by an inferior. It can be used to refer to God, but it can also be used to refer to a king or a master or someone who is in a position of authority. The translation Lord works well here. But just grasp the beauty of the opening line and what will become the closing address here. O Yahweh, our Adonai. O Lord, our Lord. O Yahweh, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Master, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The Lord's name is great because he gave it to his people so that they would know him. And embedded in that very name, Yahweh, is an understanding of God's superiority and greatness, his marvelousness. He is superior. He is Lord, but also embedded in the name that God gave his people is a a reminder of a covenantal, steadfast love for his people. The marvelous Lord of the universe, of the cosmos, is the God of David and the God of the Israelites. He cares for them. He is our Lord. 
He is Yahweh. To go back to that earlier image, this should start to blow our mind. His name is majestic over, the name, over all the earth. It is the greatest name. It's worth marveling at. And that's what David does and then composes so that God's people can sing this song of the Lord's marvelousness. So what has the marvelous God done? First, second half of verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. That's something to marvel about right there. The ancient Hebrews would have thought of the universe quite differently than we do today. They did not have telescopes and satellites and space probes that have given us great insight into the nature of our planet among the billions of galaxies. David or Moses would not have known all of that. They would have looked up and they would have seen the sky and the stars and the heavens and the clouds. An ancient Hebrew would have depicted, would have thought about the earth as covered by a domed firmament. That's how they described things. And above that firmament was the dwelling place of God. God dwells above the firmament, above the sky. He's hidden in clouds and majesty. The dwelling place of God is seen as separate from mankind. And it's here that David confesses the Lord has placed his glory. He set his glory above the heavens. So yes, God's glory has been set above the heavens, but verse 1, his name is great where? In all the earth. Well, how is God's name great in all the earth if his glory is set above the heavens? Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. The glorious God of the heavens uses babies and infants to shut up his enemy. The God who resides in splendor and majesty establishes his strength and shuts his enemy down through the mouth of babies. It's a tricky statement to understand. Sometimes I've, I've thought, does that mean that like, the sound of babies is praise to God somehow? Because I'm not, I'm not sure our nursery workers would agree with that this morning. Or those of you who have infants and toddlers would agree with that. When I heard cries at 3 a.m. from a crib, I rarely thought, what a beautiful, strong testimony of the majesty of God I'm hearing from that crib. So thank you, Penelope, for reminding me of the Lord's strength this morning. That was not my reaction, but maybe it should have been a little bit. The cry of a child is a testimony to the creation of God. It's a testimony to the provision of God, the gifts of God. It's just hard at 3 a.m. or when a preacher waxes long on a Sunday morning. Christopher Ashe says this, When the feeblest human being takes his name on their lips in praise, they enter into a dignity that is stronger than all human Autonomous pride. The majestic God of the universe will shut the mouth of his enemies through the work, through the weakest and most dependent of humans. His strength will be established as his people worship him. This is how God works throughout the scriptures, and David personally knew it. God had taken a simple shepherd boy and defeated a giant. There's likely even a subtle reference here to Genesis 3.15, where after the fall of humanity into sin, God curses the serpent and says, I will put enmity, a word that's related to enemy, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
an offspring of Eve will crush the serpent. So David started in the heavens with the glory of God. Now he returns to the earth to listen to a baby's cry in the cradle. But now his thoughts return back to the heavens. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. That's beautiful poetry there. It depicts God as a, a creative artist, almost working with finger paints, right? Placing the moon and the stars on the, 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 the landscape of the sky in just the right place. David grew up tending sheep, and unlike us, unfortunately, he spent a lot of time outdoors gazing at the heavens at night. It could be possible that in the midst of his fleeing from Absalom, in the midst of his running, he was outside of a cave looking up at the heavens as well. There was no light pollution 3,000 years ago, so what David would have saw would have been much more brilliant than what you see on your deck at night in the suburbs here. It was dark then when you looked at the earth, but it was not dark when you looked up at the sky. The stars exploded across the sky. Pictures never do this justice, but we'll try. We come inside when it's dark. We may begrudgingly spend a couple nights outside every year camping, but most of you would probably prefer to uh, glamp in an air-conditioned motorhome with Wi-Fi rather than stay outside on the hard ground. And I think we miss something in that. I've been out on nights where the stars light up the sky so much with such brilliance that they will mirror themselves on the surface of a glassy, calm lake. You actually get two visions of that starry landscape. Last winter, my son spent a night outside marveling at the northern lights. He sent me some pictures. Those are still photos from a 20-year-old's iPhone. Imagine them dancing across the heavens for hours on end throughout the night. I have no idea how the northern lights work. I, I try to read about it, but I can't, I can't understand it. I just know it's amazing. It's worth marveling at. It's breathtaking. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? Some would say, like, just, I don't even know what to do when I see things like that. I'm so overcome. So what do you think or say or sing in response to that? Well, here's what David says, verse 4. He gets kind of introspective. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? When I see that, who am I? Who are we? What do we matter? Psalm 103 says this, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place is no more. We're just dust. 
Gerald Wilson once again says, In contrast to the enduring natural elements of the world, we humans come late on the scene, live fragile and troubled lives, and depart quickly, leaving behind little noticeable mark. It's kind of bleak, isn't it? But it's a natural reaction to an awe-filled, or we might say awful, gaze at the brilliant sky full of stars. Why would Yahweh, why would Adonai be mindful of rebellious Israelites? Why would the God of the universe care for a sinful man like David? And here it comes in the next verses. Yet, yet, why are you mindful of him? Why would you care? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You've given dominion to man. So not to overuse the term, but this is mind-blowing, isn't it? The God whose fingers put the stars in place also places humans in a unique position of glory and honor right up there with magnificent heavenly beings. So in the creation account, Genesis 1, humans are made on the same day as the animals, as land creatures. Yet something is special with this final piece of his artistic creation. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Humans are the only part of God's creation made in God's image, which theologians and those who like to speak Latin call the imago Dei. They're given glory, something that God is, and they're given honor, something that God has. They're weak and they're petty and pathetic on their own, but God, who sets the stars in place, has put his favor on us. And created us for a purpose to rule over and care for his creation. What what honor there. God gives humans dominion over creation. Now, that word dominion, it can maybe be taken a little wrongly. We hear that word and we might think of something different. So one of my many favorite nerdy board games um, is the game called Dominion. Um, This is for you, Darren and Matt and others. Here's the description from the back of the box here. You are a monarch like your parents before you, a ruler of a small, pleasant kingdom of rivers and evergreens. Unlike your parents, however, you have hopes and dreams. You want a bigger and more pleasant kingdom with more rivers and wider variety of trees. You want a, wait for it, Dominion, right? In all directions lie fiefs, freeholds, and feudums, all are small bits of lands controlled by petty lords and verging on anarchy. You will bring civilization to these people, uniting them under your banner. That's what we tend to think of when we think of dominion, kind of conquering and claiming and controlling and crushing enemies. The biblical image does include ruling, but it also includes caretaking. It also includes cultivating. Genesis 1, God gives the command to the first humans, fill the earth and subdue it and have a dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth, which sounds very similar to Psalm 8. And it kind of sounds like just have dominion, rule over, subdue, but then it's clarified in Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Cultivating, caretaking is part of that stewardship and ruling over creation. 
Dominion certainly implies a position of authority and power, but it's also a role of caretaking. God puts humans in a place of authority and responsibility. We are his representatives and stewards over creation. We bear his image. In most creation narratives of the people around the Israelites, the universe was accidentally created after a battle between the gods, usually out of the carcass of some nasty god. But in the biblical narrative, a caring creator artistically places everything in its place with his fingers. In the creation narratives of the people around the Israelites, humans are created to relieve the gods of labor, their slaves. But in the biblical narrative, God crowns humans with glory and honor and invites them to ride, to rule alongside him in presiding over and caring for his creation. But in that, there's a note of sadness maybe hovering behind this psalm because we've made a rather heaping mess with our position of dominion, haven't we? Even though our dominion is limited and it's in Underneath God's dominion, a quick glance at the state of the world shows a brokenness that doesn't seem to fit well with Psalm 8, 6. The beasts of the field have harmed a fair share of their rulers. There's such a thing as death and suffering. There's such a thing as a great white shark. We don't seem to have that under our feet quite yet. It eats our feet, right? And it's not just sharks, it's disease and injury and war and oppression and persecution and abuses of power and pollution and on and on. Humans are quite awful caretakers. We have yet to tame a shark. We have failed the rule, the role given to us in Genesis 1 and 2 and reminded that, and that David marvels at in Psalm 8. And so the author of Hebrews is very helpful here. He quotes Psalm 8 and shows that there was someone there was someone. shows that one who referred to himself as the Son of Man has been crowned with glory and honor. And he says this, Now in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, God left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so while humans screwed up, we take our God-given dominion and abuse power and authority, we forsake our responsibility, and creation suffers and groans because of our sin. One man, one man did not abuse that power and authority. One son of man did not forsake his responsibility to the, mi the mission given to him by his father. Jesus set aside his glory and honor to suffer and die, tasting death for everyone, so that he could be raised up, crowned with glory and honor, and give us the hope of a new creation, free from the stain of sin. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Here's how Tim Keller summarizes this psalm. Why should God care about us? Because he has made us in his image and gives us the world he created to care for as his agents. Living with care for the land, sea, and air, and all who live there, and doing justice for every human being stamped with his image brings God glory. As a human race, we are not doing this very well. But Jesus has come, 
and eventually the world will be under his feet, and then everything will be made right. We're not there yet. We groan, we suffer, we wait, but we groan and we suffer and we wait with an incredibly joyful hope because our God, Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai, took on flesh and rescued us from the mess we made. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There are plenty of times for lament and sorrow over the brokenness and sin in the world, and the Psalms give us language for those prayers. But in the midst of that suffering, we still need to look up and see the Lord of the stars who cares for his people through, his, through the work of his son. His name, Yahweh, our covenantal God, is majestic in all the earth. Let me give you just a few quick end note practical tips based off of this psalm. First, in your journey, learn to look up. Learn to look up at the stars. Learn to marvel at the things in the sky. Learn to be in awe of what God has created. Learn to look at a tree in your backyard and just say, that's amazing. I can't do that. I can't even comprehend how that thing stands up when the wind comes through. That is marvelous. And God created that. Here's another tip. Get a bird feeder and exercise some dominion. (laughs) Provide. Care for that bird. Cultivate it. Be in awe of the birds and how God provides for them through his agents on this earth, us. Get a bird feeder. Plant something. It's a little late for a garden, but maybe you can put something in a pot and grow it and cultivate it and care for it and be in awe that this thing grows out of the goodness of God and you see his hand in that. Take a walk around the block, through the woods, whatever, but get outside and learn to marvel at creation and learn to marvel at a creative God who cares for you and sent his son to be your savior. I'm going to read Psalm 8 one last time, and I'm going to read it as a prayer here. Listen to the words of this as we conclude. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, In all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, you are a majestic God. Thank you for being mindful of us. Amen.